Well, you can open up to Ephesians 4 this morning. Did you know that as you're sitting there right now, there are 11 different systems in your body that are performing unique functions at this very moment? So I'll list some of them, not all of them. You've got the circulatory system. Blood is moving around your body. Oxygen is being carried around your body right now. The digestive system, after breakfast, it is working right now, taking nutrients from the food, delivering them where they need to go. Your immune system is defending your body from pathogens that would enter in and cause harm. Your muscular system allows your body to move using muscles. Your nervous system collects and processes information through your nerves and sends it to your brain and directs those muscles. Obviously, there are other systems in place, and it's not a medical lecture this morning. The amazing thing about this is that all of those systems are working right now, and they're united in complete harmony together. And most of the time, you and I don't even think about that and don't even notice that those systems are are doing their work in harmony with one another. So you've got those 11 big systems that are happening and working right now, but within each of those systems, there are also different organs and tissues and other body parts that are doing work as a part of one of those systems. Take the muscular system, for example. Somewhere between 650 and 800 and some muscles are operating in your body, allowing you to move, allowing each different part of your body to function and to move seamlessly. And so those muscles coordinate with your your nervous system, and they get information, and then they move and allow you to do different things, like picking up that cup of coffee and without even thinking about it, putting it to your lips and drinking it rather than dumping the hot coffee out on your lap, which maybe that happened to some of you this morning. (laughs) Sorry about that. But both of those systems work in tandem with your circulatory system and and others to make all of this happen. And it's, it's a profound thing when you really stop and think about how it all works in harmony and it's a testament to God's wisdom in designing you and I to work the way that we do. And that's why the body makes a fantastic picture of the church. And it's why Paul uses the body as an illustration for what should be happening and what he wants to happen within the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, in the book of Ephesians, we've already seen this hinted at in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul calls the church one new man. But in chapter 4, even as you saw read this morning, he really goes full tilt with this illustration of the body. He speaks of the growth of the church in chapter 2, and then in chapter 4, he he mentions the body specifically. And in in chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, he really brings this out. I mean, it's mentioned in chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body, but now he He brings this illustration out and wants us to think about the church in terms of the unity of the body. And as he brings out this illustration, he also combines it with this picture of each of us receiving a gift, a gift of grace from God to be used as a part of the body, 
to function as those different systems and those different organs and tissues function within the body. Each of us is to play our part and use our gift for the unified whole, for the benefit of the unified whole. So in verses 7 to 16, which is what we're going to begin looking at this morning, you could say it like this. The church is a body and each part of the body must perform its function and role for the body to grow and move and do what it has been designed to do. And each part of the body receives its role or its function as a gift from God by his grace. And just like a human body has many different important parts with different roles, the church has a diversity of members. We don't all do the same thing. We don't all function in the same way. But each of us has a different gift, and that gift is given to us to serve the greater body and support the body so that it grows to maturity, as we'll see in this passage. And so verses 7 to 16 are part of this larger section of verses 1 to 16. We started looking at this last week. And here's what we started to see, three practices to pursue unity as Christ's body. All right, the first one of these we looked at last week is to pursue unity, we have to grow in virtue and love. We grow in virtue and love. Look back at verse one with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so this entire section Chapters 4 through 6 is based on the teaching or the doctrine, the instruction that he's given in chapters 1 to 3. And now he says, therefore, you have received this calling that I've just described to you. So now I want you to balance out that calling with your walk, with your lifestyle. I want you to live suitably in a way that matches that calling. It's appropriate to it. And how do you do that? First of all, you grow in virtue and love. You put on patience and gentleness. You bear with one another, and we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we're eager to maintain that unity because we know what we are unified around, what draws us together. And this is our second practice. Remember our common faith. We grow in these virtues, these character qualities of love And then as we do that, we remember what we have in common. Verses 4 to 6, in verses 4 to 6, he lays out seven ones, seven different areas that are one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. These are the things that we share in common. These are the things that we are united around. And of course, if you were to go back and look at this passage, you would see in verse 4, he talks about the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, he talks about God the Father, the three members of the triune God. And so our unity together is based on God's unity as a trinity. And so we want to know him and be united together. And living, live in loving communion with one another and ultimately in loving communion with him. That is what he has saved us for. And so Paul would say here, we are supposed to focus our time on what binds us together, what brings us together, what we share in common. It's so easy to focus on our differences 
and what breaks us apart. But, but Paul would say here, one of the practices to cultivate unity is to remember our common faith. And so now, in verses 7 through 16, here's our third practice to pursue unity. Cultivate Christ's gifts of ministry. Cultivate Christ's gifts of ministry. So up until this point, he's really been telling us, focus on what you have in common. Focus on the unity that you have together. And he's going to continue doing that, but he changes directions a little bit. And now he starts to say, okay, it's not, you're not all the same, and you have to recognize this. Everybody is not the same in the church, and in order to have unity, you need to recognize the ways in which you are different, how you are gifted, and then practice and cultivate that different gifting that you have received. Recognize that we each bring different gifts to the table, and we want to cultivate those things and utilize them. And when we do that, it will bring unity and growth, and we'll all pursue together maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. You would think it would bring less unity when you talk about the diversity that we have in the church, the different ways we're gifted. But actually, Paul says it's a necessary part of unity. Look what he says in verse 7. But... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this is sort of, sort of a summary or theme for this entire section here. And you can, you can see in verse 7, he's talking to each one of us. So far, he's talked about all of us together, the unity that we have. And now he's going to turn his attention to each one of us individually. He's focusing on what each of you bring to the table in the church body. So each person who is, notice he says, in Christ, all throughout this, this passage, it's the measure of Christ's gift. To those who are in Christ, we've received a gift of grace, according to verse 7. That gift of grace has been given to us from the riches of Christ, from the measure of Christ's gift. You see this other places in, in Paul's letters. Romans 12, verses 3 through the first part of verse 6. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So Paul makes it very clear in, in Romans 12 and in Ephesians 4, you and I are given whatever gifts we have. So if you find yourself serving in the church and you're, you're doing something in the church, whether it's teaching or leading a devotional or whether it's singing or serving administratively in the church, whatever you find yourself doing in the church, and it's effective, and people respond well to that, and they appreciate what you are doing and the way in which you're serving, understand God has given you that gift. It's not yours. It's not because you're so amazing and so great. It's because God has given that gift to you, and he's given it to you in order to cultivate his church and his body. 
He's designed you to function in that way. But here's the flip side of that, right? It's not for you that you've been given the gift, but if you're currently not serving in some capacity within the church, then you're missing out on the gift of grace that God has given to you. You're not properly exercising the gift that he's given to you. I mean, look at verse, the end of this, uh, Romans 12, 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. I mean, it makes sense to Paul, right? You've got a gift given to you. It's different than others, so use it. And then in this passage, he goes on to list some of those gifts. We're a body, and each part of the body needs to use its gifting, use its function for the good of the whole body. It can't work properly if each part is not doing its part. Now, I understand Just practically speaking, it can be hard to figure out what your gifting is and how you're supposed to utilize your gifting to serve the body. And I'll just say this, if you're struggling with that, you don't know where to utilize your gifting, where to serve, even how you're gifted, come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to Pastor Marcel. We we want to help you find out your gifting and utilize it. We'll talk about this later in this passage, but that is literally what we're here for. <laughs> like, that is our job. That is our gifting. And you'll see that as we, as we go on in this passage. But that's our role in the body. So, verse 7 summarizes the entire passage. This kind of sets the table for what we're going to see here. And Basically, what Paul says is Jesus gives gifts to his body, Right? But what right does Jesus have to give these gifts? Now, that may sound like a crazy question, right? Like, okay, he's sovereign God, so of course he has the right to give gifts to whomever he wants to. He can do whatever he wants. And that's true in one sense, but it's also true that you and I came into this world in a very particular circumstance. And that circumstance is described to us in Ephesians 2. Look back there, Ephesians 2 Verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following not Christ, but the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of man kind. So you and I came into this world children of wrath, not children of God, adopted sons. We came into this world self-focused and self-centered. And so in a very real sense, Jesus had to earn the right to give gifts to these people who are like this, to give them the gift of grace And so how does he earn that right to bestow the gifts of the Spirit on people who are opposed to him and rebellious against him and in slavery to their sin? How does he do that? Well, that's what Paul's going to explain to us in verses 8 through 10. So verse 8, you can see, begins with the word, therefore. 
And so he's giving us a quote here from the Old Testament. Verse 8 says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so here's a quote from the Old Testament. And so what Paul is saying is this quote provides the foundation on which Jesus gives gifts to people. This gives us the support or the basis. This is how Jesus earns the right to give gifts to people. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, or if you're not, let me just tell you, when you see a quote like this from the Old Testament, the first thing you should do is go look at your cross-references and figure out where it comes from. So if you've done that this morning, hopefully some of you have, you can see that this is a quote from Psalm 68. This is a quote from Psalm 68, and if Paul, this morning, if Paul is saying this proves that Jesus has earned the right to give these gifts to people, then we need to understand as Bible students this morning and as those who want to honor the unity of the church body, if Paul sees this as important, then we need to understand exactly how he's using this quote and what he's doing here. So turn back to Psalm 68 with me. Keep your finger in Ephesians 4. We are not done there, but I do want you to turn back to Psalm 68, and we're going to look at this briefly. So, what you've got in this psalm is you've got a psalm describing God's victory over his enemies. Look at verses 1 to 3. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. So God here, in this psalm, it sets the table for us in verses 1 to 3. He's winning the victory over his enemies, and his victory is great. But in this psalm, what's so beautiful is he's winning it in a particular way. Look at verse 4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song, look at this, to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. All right, so he rides through the deserts. Now look down at verse 7. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. So what's happening here? How is God winning the victory? Well, it's a military procession, right? And what's happening is God is leaving Egypt and he's winning the victory over the Egyptians. And he's marching through the wilderness in front of his people And this psalm is describing the movement of God from Egypt into the wilderness. But this procession, this military procession is headed somewhere. And it's headed to a mountain. Initially, look at verse 8. The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. So God leads his people out of Egypt in military victory and crushes his enemies, and then he leads them to Mount Sinai. But his procession doesn't stop at Mount Sinai. In fact, he, after Sinai, he continued to move through the wilderness and to the desert, and he had an ultimate destination 
for this military procession in mind. He never planned on dwelling on Mount Sinai with his people forever. That was not his ultimate stopping point. He had another mountain in mind that he was headed toward. And as he's leading his people toward that other mountain, he's going to continue triumphing over his enemies. In fact, this psalm poetically pictures Mount Sinai as being jealous over this other mountain because this is where God's going to end up dwelling. Look down at verse 16. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, and that's Sinai, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. So where is this other mountain that God is going to continue winning victories over his enemies and ultimately lead his people to and dwell on forever? Look down at, or look at verse Verse 18, 17 and 18. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. And look at this. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So he's got another place that he's going. That's ultimately Sinai is going to be in that sanctuary. Verse 18. Here's our verse that's quoted. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. So he's ascending to this other mountain and he's receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So he wins the victory over his enemies. He ascends his holy mountain in victory. He triumphs over his enemies and he receives gifts from among men as a part of this victory march. So where's this other mountain? Well, I think you probably know the answer to this, but look down at verse 28. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us because of your temple at Jerusalem. Kings shall bear gifts to you. So it's ultimately Jerusalem where the temple will be built and God will dwell among his people. But if you go back to verse 18, This is the key verse, right? This is what Paul quotes in the New Testament. So who are the captives here? Because that's what Paul quotes in the New Testament. You lead a host of captives in your train. Well, I think in Psalm 68, David's going back to another verse, all the way back in Numbers. Behold, I have taken, that's this language of taken captive. I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And so God says, I am setting apart the Levites to serve in my sanctuary. I've taken them from among men. And as he's going through this victory march to dwell on his holy mountain, he's taken these people and he set them apart and he's given them as gifts to the nation of Israel. They're going to serve in God's dwelling place. And that's the picture that Psalm 68 gives to us of God's military procession, winning the victory over his enemies and setting aside people to serve his people in the sanctuary. Now, what does that have to do with Ephesians 4? That picture there. How does this serve as the foundation of God giving gifts to each one of us in the church? Well, if you go back and read Psalm 68, which I would encourage you to read the whole thing this afternoon, it ends looking forward to the day when God 
will reign over the entire world from Jerusalem, from his holy mountain in Jerusalem. And this procession that he's describing is preparing for that day. And Paul, by quoting this, is saying, Christ's work is the fulfillment of that hope. This is sort of a a precursor to that hope of what he's going to do. And Christ's work brings this hope to completion. Now go back to Ephesians 4. Paul quotes this, and now he tells us what he means by this in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, in saying he ascended. So he focuses on this word ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what he's describing here is Jesus in his incarnation descending into the earth. And then Jesus is going on a victory march. And he descends, and then ultimately he ascends to the holy mountain, and he wins the victory over his enemies, and he comes into the heavenly sanctuary in God's presence as the victorious king who reigns over all. It even says that at the end of verse 10, that he might fill all things. He ascends to heaven as the victorious king. He reigns over everything. That's what it means that he fills all things. He's sovereign. He's the king. And he has won the right to rule by his victory. It's the same idea as Philippians 2, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before him. And so what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has slaughtered his enemies. He's won the victory through his death, and he has ascended to the Father as the victorious king, finalized his sovereign reign, and now he has the ability to endow gifts to his people. What are those gifts? We'll look at verse 11. And he gave, right? Here's the gifts, at least some of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is a partial list. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are the foundational gifts given to the church so that the rest of the body can learn to exercise its gifts. And what's amazing about this list is what are these gifts? They're people. They're people redeemed from death like the Levites in the Old Testament and set apart for God's use. And so in a very real sense, you and I are the captives And we've been freed, rescued from death, and we've been given grace by our rescuer to then serve him as the victorious king. And so let's look at these gifts here in verse 11. They're given to the church, the foundational gifts, the apostles and the prophets. And we've already seen these two gifts. If you look back at chapter 2 and verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So an apostle is someone officially commissioned by God, sent out by him. And a prophet is someone who spoke the word of God and communicated the word of God, the revelation of God to others, particularly before the canon was completed before the revelation was even written down. Another gift given to the church, the evangelists. These are people who do pioneering work with the gospel. 
This is a modern-day missionary, someone who goes out to people who have not heard the gospel before and tries to break new ground and plant churches. That is missionary work. And this is a gift given to the church to see the church grow numerically, to see new people saved into the body. And then finally here you have shepherds and teachers. And really this is one group, one office or function that has, or office that has two functions to it. Shepherding, which is pastoral care, leadership, oversight in the church. It's the idea of a shepherd, pastor. They have oversight of the church. And then the teacher, one who communicates apostolic doctrine in an authoritative way. And so the pastor and the teacher is the same function and the same role The teaching happens as God's authoritative revelation is explained to people. It's not just concerned with the facts of the Bible, but it's concerned with seeing people transformed into the image of Christ. All right, now, let me kind of try to bring all this together and show you where we're at with this. It's a lot to take in. So if you remember, talking about three practices to pursue unity as Christ's body. And so the third practice here is that we would cultivate Christ's gifts of ministry. So verse 7, he's given these gifts. Verses 8 through 10, he's won the victory over his enemies and has set apart people who can exercise their gifts in the church through his death and resurrection, through his incarnation, death and resurrection. He's won the right to save men and women and to endow them with gifts. And then you see in verse 11, the examples, the first foretaste of examples of these gifts. But what do these people use their gifts for? And this is where everyone comes into play here. I want to make this very practical, all right? I'm a pastor teacher. That's my role specifically mentioned here, right? You may not see your gift mentioned in verse 11. That's, it's not an exhaustive list. But it's a list of people who are gifted for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what the other elders are supposed to be doing. We use our gifting, I use my gifting that is given by God for a specific purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We'll talk more in detail about that next week. But it's possible to get the idea that, well, the pastor is is paid by the church, and this is his full-time job, and so he does the work of ministry, And I attend the church, and I receive his ministry as someone who attends. But that's not what God says here. God has given pastors and teachers particular gifts in the body given by him, and they are to exercise their gifts to equip. Think of a soldier going into battle. That soldier must be properly equipped. He has to have the right armor, the right weapons. He has to have the right supplies so he can be adequately prepared for battle. He's equipped. 
He's equipped to go into battle, and you, as the believers of the body of Christ, are equipped to do the work of ministry, equipped all the saints. So if you are a believer in Christ this morning, you have been gifted for ministry, ministry within the body. And God has given you church leadership to help you to cultivate that gift and to exercise that gift within the body, not just to watch other people do the work of ministry, but for you to participate full tilt and aggressively to utilize your gift for the good of the body. Now, there's a lot more that we're going to go into with this next week. I mean, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because this is a foundational passage in understanding what we do here as the church. And this is so vital for us to grasp. And so I only took a part of it this morning so you could understand the foundation. And next week, we're going to go more into the details of what it looks like to do ministry and to exercise your gifting and why we do that. What is the goal of all of this? And that's spelled out in verses 12 through 16. But as you think about your gifting in the body and church leadership's responsibility to equip you to exercise your gifting, let me just end by asking you some questions to consider. What is your gifting to serve the body? I mean, God makes it very clear that each one of us, verse 7, has been given a gift according to the measure of of Christ. So what is your gifting? And if you don't know that this morning, it could be a myriad of ways that you're gifted. But if you don't know that, then what are you going to do to discover it? And if you aren't currently exercising your gift in the body, why not? Why not jump in? Let me ask you this. Are you letting Church leadership equip you to use your gift in the best way possible. I mean, that's not self-serving. I want to exercise my gift just like you want to exercise your gift, and mine is to serve you by equipping you to do the work of ministry. That's what I'm here for. So let leadership help you with this, to utilize your gifting. You know, some people... They go into churches and they demand to, to do certain things, right? And they say, well, I know what my gifting is and here's the only thing that I'll do here and you better let me do this, right? And they don't really want leadership, not to dictate what they do, but to be involved in discussing it with them and helping them to fully utilize their gifting to serve the church. Some people want to use their gifting for self advancement, and self-edification. Let me ask another question. Are you letting others in the body serve you with their gifting? I mean, that's what we're all here for together, right? To, to serve one another for the ultimate purpose, as you'll see, the building up of the body of Christ. So are you letting other people use their gifts to serve you? So we can be a healthy body of believers, or are you isolating yourself from others? And only coming in contact with other believers in minimal ways and not benefiting from the diversity of gifts that God has given to his church. So these are a few questions to think about, discuss in your small groups or at your lunch table today. 
But I'll just say the opportunities are great. There's always ministry to be done. And we'll talk specifically next week about what it means to do ministry. It may not be what you think it is. There's always, always, always ministry to be done in the church body. And the gifts have been given by God and they've been given liberally. He overflows in his giving of gifts and they're good gifts. So let's exercise those gifts for God's glory and ultimately for our good. Let's pray. God, you are so kind to us. You bring us into a body of believers, people who are gifted for ministry, for the building up of the body, for spiritual maturity, and you you put us there and you gift us individually so that we can find fulfillment and satisfaction and joy in serving the body and seeing the body grow. And so I pray this morning that you would help each one here, even as you described in verse seven, each one of us has been given a gift according to your grace. And I pray that you would help us to know what that is. And then as Romans 12, six says, let us use them, Lord. And help us as church leaders to understand our role. We are servants. We are here for the good of the body and we are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to see the church flourish as people utilize their gifts with one another. And when all of that happens, the body builds itself up in love and reaches the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We become what we're supposed to be as your church. That's our desire, Lord. That's what we want. And you have clearly laid out how we go about that here. You have won the victory over the powers of darkness and have saved us for this purpose. So I pray that we would recognize it, utilize it. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.